right, happy Wednesday, everyone, and welcome to the Labor Radio Network's weekly live stream. Really psyched to be here tonight. I'm Bama Afreya. I host a podcast called The Gig, which is about gig workers, and that's the subject of our show tonight. And my co-host is Maximilian Alvarez. Max, you want to say hello? Hey, how's it going, Bama? Great to be here with you. Uh, excited for... Uh, the conversation that we got. Um, big shout out to all of our friends and comrades and cohorts at the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Uh, big shout out to our man Evan Pat from Empathy Media Lab for producing this. And hello to uh, everyone who's watching. So I'm I'm Maximilian Alvarez. Uh, I am the host of uh, the uh, podcast Working People, uh, where I interview workers about their lives, jobs, dreams, and struggles. Um, and for my day job, I'm the editor-in-chief at the Real News Network here in Baltimore. All right, so good to be together tonight, and we are psyched about our guest as well, so we're going to jump right into it. Our first guest is Yassine Aslam, and Yassine is joining us from London, UK, where he is up very late tonight to be part of this show, so we super appreciate it. And I want to just give a little background before we jump into asking you some questions, Yassine. Um, you are with the App Drivers and Couriers Union in the UK, which is actually a fairly new union, but you've been organizing for a while. And you are famous, or in some quarters infamous, because you're the little guy that took on one of the biggest platform companies in the world, Uber, and uh, decided to sue them because you didn't think they were treating you right. So uh, after many years, congratulations, you and your co-plaintiffs just had a really exciting victory in the UK Supreme Court. And uh, so, you know, we're really glad you're with us and you've got quite a story. So we wanna just jump right into it. Yeah, so a big, big second Bama's congratulations on a very hard fought battle, my man. That was what, six years altogether? Seven years, I would say, seven years. But I played a small role in it because uh, don't forget we had a lot of uh, people in the process that supported us, including the lawyers, the drivers. and um, So so it wasn't like we all, it was done collectively. So I, would, I wasn't able to do it on my own, uh, even though it's my name at the top and I was one of the first claimants. But um, yeah, main thing is we managed to do it. Well, I mean, I think that's part of your story, Yassine, is like the power of having that union behind you that you were organizing the whole time. But take us back to the beginning, because not everybody knows about the case. Just what happened? Why did you decide to sue this giant company? Well, I actually started working as a minicab driver, they call it, in London. So uh, in London, we have the regulate, it's regulated. So you have uh, licensed taxi drivers and you have the licensed private hire drivers. So I become a private hire driver back in 2006, you know, when I was made a redundant for my IT job, just while I was looking for a job. Um, so it's just like a temporary thing for me. But I got stuck into it because I enjoyed, you know, it's like you work hard on a Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night, and you had the weekdays off. And I just was so, you know, like, basically, I got stuck to it. So Uber come into London 2012. But when they first arrived in London, it is more about doing the high-end executive, um, like the S-Class Mercedes and that kind of stuff. So when they launched the Uber X in 2013, I was one of the first drivers to actually be there on the first day when they launched. You know, So 
uh, it was good when they first started, you know. Uh, and one of the things that we saw over the years, like when you look at the traditional cab office, because you had a human controller and the way things work, it was like, you know, like there's a favoritism system that people didn't like. So, for example, you had a human giving you jobs. So, for example, let's say I didn't get on with the controller. He would make sure I have a crap day. Um, at the same time, you had some controller that would ask you to buy cigarettes for them or donut kebab. So if you didn't look after them, it meant like you were at their mercy. So when Uber come into the market, it's all about you're in charge. You know, you're the boss. You don't need to tell anyone when you're going to log on, when you're going to log off um, and all that kind of stuff. But for me, like the biggest what when I really started campaigning is more about the way drivers were assaulted and attacking the job and they had no protection. So if we go back to 2013, people were making decent money. You know, I myself was grossing about 50 pounds an hour, you know, when I was working at Uber back in the day. But it was about like, let's say I got assaulted by a passenger. Uber would refuse to, um, you know, cooperate. And um, basically, like, there was no protection. And then at the same time, we had, like, a rating system, you know, like, where the customer rates you. So even though Uber says you're your own boss and you're running your own business, indirectly, there was something there that was managing. You're being, like, performance managed. And at the same time, there's a control element over you where, for example, if my rating dropped below 4.4, I get kicked off the platform. You know, and we couldn't challenge that. So I've seen a lot of my friend drivers that were getting kicked off the platform unfairly, you know. And then at the same time, especially when uh, some of my colleague or friend got assaulted and the customer then rated them badly, you know, like the question was, you know, like what protection do we have? Where the good thing about traditional cab office was if you ever got into any problems, you know, you, you radio in and they'll, you know, like, if there's any drivers parked by nearby they'll come and assist you now the whole idea of technology is to make you feel safer and better and one of the things that uber done very well was isolate everyone you know so everyone was just attached it's all about you being your own boss um, making money but really what was happening is you know like when you really look at this model <clears throat> It's all about, you know, like Uber, they tapped into a market, which heavily is the BME community. And because there's so much discrimination, all kinds of stuff, people just find it a lot easier. Like the way I went in from IT into cabin, they find it a lot easier to just drive uh, as a living, as an income, uh, rather than going for other um, jobs or um, stuff. So what was happening is there's Uber coming into the market, they came in so aggressively, like when I started, and I'm talking like over the four or five years, is the fares went down so much. I saw the fares drop three times. I saw the commission go um, up. So um, at the moment, Uber has about 60,000 drivers in London. But when I started working with them, they only had about 1,000 drivers. So you could see how it went up. So you could see how the model is there. It's all about making the fares cheaper to get more and more customers on the platform and having more and more drivers on the platform so they got supplies of drivers. So you got drivers sitting around empty. And the problem we had in, like for me, like as an old driver is we could see what was happening because they were killing off the market around us. And if you got kicked out from Uber, you, you technically have to leave the trade. So 
my case was more about trying to help drivers with, you know, when they were getting assaulted, you know. So when I filed my case um, back in 2015, it was about like when, you know, like I was um, enrolled in a whistleblowing stuff. So in order to be protected under the Whistleblowing Act, you had to be a worker. And at the same time, I met James Farrah, who got assaulted by a passenger, and it took 10 weeks for Uber to release that information to the police. So, you know, like we were working together at the time. So uh, when we spoke to the solicitors uh, or the lawyers, um, they turned around and said, look, you definitely have a case here, and this needs to be challenged. And that's where the case started from. So but, just to, um, break, just to really just to get clear again for our listeners who aren't familiar with the case. So really just even to be able to get records for a driver who was assaulted, it turned out that you needed the company to recognize that you were employees. Is that right? Well, the point was the contract was made in such a way where if something went wrong, they would disappear. You know, so they basically, you're running your business. If I got killed or something, it's my business. I was running my business and something happened. So there's no one taking responsibility. Now, the big difference between us guys here in London or the UK compared to other countries, like let's say in the USA, is um, like in California, it's a bit different. But when we're talking about um, here in the UK, we have a regulator, a license regime, transport for London. Now, one of the problem we had is the regulators are also failing to do their job uh, enforcing the law. And then you've got big, massive company like Uber that comes into the market and they could afford not to obey the law. And the problem we were finding is no one is willing to challenge it. So even now that we won in the Supreme Court, one of the problems we have is like whether it's politician, whether it's the government or the transport for London, they just don't have, they just don't want to fight Uber, which meant the workers have to do the fighting. And that's what it was throughout each process. We kept them being uh, like everyone we went to, like all the politicians, like, even though we had a lot of politicians support us from the Labour Party. But at the same time, it is about, look, we've got to wait for the court. Uh, we let you guys fight on the court. And I think that's so wrong because it shouldn't be the workers fighting. You know, the regulation is there. For example, the national minimum wage has been around for years. Now, the whole idea of having these basic rights. So in the UK, we have three status. So you have the self-employed. Then you have an employee, and then in the middle, we have a limby worker, they call it. Now, with a limby worker, you're only entitled to two basic stuff, which is the right to earn the minimum wage and holiday pay. And the third thing is the right not to be discriminated against or whistleblowing act, and that's it, yeah? So it's just like, for example, let's say I am earning the minimum wage. Why would Uber want to fight me? So they dragged this on for six years. So... And I want to just, you know, there are a couple things that I, I, I'm going to ask you again, just to make sure everybody else knows. And for people who want to hear more about the whole case, by the way, um, my episode three, Judgment Day of the Gig, has Yassine and James's whole story. But Yassine, you know, your case, you won in the lower courts. And I want to really like drill down on something you just said. You won in the lower courts. They declared that you were workers in this second category that you just said that was years ago. But the company never obeyed that lower court ruling. And you're saying the regulators never stepped no. in to say you have to obey that ruling. No so one. you have to keep on fighting. And so, so tell us about what you had to do to like sort of keep the pressure. I mean, this is it. Like, this is what I meant. It's, there's a company that got a fortune to burn. 
And it's all about, like I said, they rely on these workers that won't fight back. It's all about you getting burnt out, you giving up and walking away. So if you look at the six years and even like the damages I get uh, for the remedy or whatever you want to call it, it's not even worth it. But the point was someone had to do it. And they were, I think, I think generally speaking, they underestimated us thinking we would just walk away eventually. But when the court looked at it, the original tribunal, they didn't want to look at the contract. They wanted to look at the reality of what was happening behind the scenes. And what, what our case and the reason why everyone talks about it is it's, it's, it just shows that it doesn't matter how good your contracts are, the courts are willing to look at reality of what's happening behind the scenes. And that's what these companies bank on, the fact that they could set up these contracts to deny people their rights and they could get away with it. But the court made it clear that, look, we won't. So in our case, we had a whole week trial where, you know, um, the judge looked at everything and he didn't just suddenly come out and give a verdict. He, you know, it come after three months, you know, and that's when like we were workers. So it's clarified. But Uber then decided to appeal. So we went to the appeal tribunal. Again, we won there. They then appealed in the high court. Again, we won in the high court. And then they decided to go to Supreme Court. Now, the shocking bit is when we first won in the tribunal, <clears throat> when, we first, <clears throat> sorry, when we first won in the tribunal in 2016, immediately the same day, Uber sent out an email to all the drivers saying the ruling only applies to two drivers. OK, but this time when we won at the Supreme Court, they've done the same thing. But this time they said the ruling applies to the 25 claimants. So so clearly they're willing to they still want to fight like they want to deny people. And a lot of it's to do with scaremongering because people need a job. They don't want to put a claim. So what's happening now is um, the new batch of claimants or the drivers that haven't claimed have to file um, a claim again to um, you know get what, what's, uh, what they're entitled to do. Well, and then my... tell us about the organizing, because the whole time you've also been yeah. organizing this new app drivers and couriers union. So talk a little so, bit about that. So like I said, the organizing was more personal because it was more about when I was seeing people getting assaulted. Um, you know, I just didn't like the fact that, you know, it was wrong. And like I said, at the same time, I saw what Uber was doing because I was talking to drivers from different places, especially around San Francisco um, at that time. <clears throat> sorry, in 2013. Uh, when they first started um, protesting there. So I could see like what was happening there is going to happen here. And then I started talking to some drivers in California uh, around um, LA. Um, and then you could see like the issue was it wasn't just unique to London. And even now, as I go on, yeah, we're seeing more and more, um, you know, it's exactly the same model everywhere. So I started organizing, I set up my small association in um, 2014. We then went through various stage. Um, last year, we set up our own dedicated union in the UK. So we're the first union ever to represent gig workers, yeah, app drivers and couriers union. So that was a massive achievement. And one of the things that was banking on this Supreme Court ruling is if we um, lost, you know, we would have lost our right to be a trade union. But having said that, and just to cut a long story short, everyone used to talk about you can't organize Uber drivers. And since we won in the Supreme Court, we're getting phone calls after court, phone calls. How do I join the union? So people see the power. 
And one of the things behind that was us guys and the team behind me and the drivers, whether James Farrow, all of us across the UK, we've just been persistent, you know, and we managed to achieve something that, you know, like where now everyone's saying you must be part of this union because this is the union that will help you. Well, and I mean, first of all, again, huge congrats to you, Yassim. Huge congrats to all the workers there, everyone who was involved in that effort. It's a really incredible story and a really inspiring one, especially for, for us across the pond over here. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of this is going to kind of connect to our next discussion uh, with Willie Solis, who uh, you can see on the call here. I would love for you guys to... To, to connect because uh, your story and Willie's are, are kind of similar in a lot of interesting ways. But, you know, I, I wanted to kind of highlight one thing and kind of by way of asking you this question before we let you go, because it seemed like there were two big uh, aspects to this Supreme Court ruling that, like you said, like these gig companies, they try really hard to write our rights out of existence with very kind of clever legalese, right? And it's really, it's really uh, great to see that the, the judge uh, in the Supreme Court looked past that to see the reality that was right in front of our faces, right? And so it seemed like there were two big realities that the Supreme Court kind of uh, wrote in stone, which is one, the way the relationship between Uber and its drivers is one of employer and employee, right? So ride, the drivers are workers. Um, you know, the Uber controls the rates, Uber controls the times, Uber can kick you off the app. Um, and so that was the ruling if I'm, if I'm understanding it correctly. But it also, and this is what I wanted to ask you about, it also cut through the bullshit argument of Uber and Lyft when they say that they're not a transportation company, they're a technology company. Right. Um, could you could you talk a little bit about what that part of the ruling means? I mean, I'm glad you said that because that's how it was always about. And even the Supreme Court, well, the various like the lower court also said the same thing. And so did the Supreme Court. It's all about, look, the end reality is the driver's going to work longer and longer. So what they're doing is being denied their rights. Now, we see this again and again where companies like Uber are hiding behind technology. And one of our biggest fear as a union is if you look at our union, like our rule book, it's more about organizing in terms of data, making sure that's part of the collective effort or bargaining when we're involved. Because what we're seeing is these companies are hiding behind this technology and the way they program the system. So we're seeing more and more drivers getting deactivated from the platform because they're rejecting jobs. But, we're, uh, but when they get deactivated, they're being told that they committed some kind of fraud or fraudulent activities. But when you actually look at that data, it shows that it's... Um, you know, they were cancelling jobs, you know. So the point behind it is even though we won at Supreme Court, we still have a lot to do because these companies, they'll just hide behind this technology. And the point is the law should still apply. And that's Uber's argument. They're saying the law should not apply to us because we're a technology company. So technically what they're saying to me is because it's an app, I should be exploited or I should not have any rights which, you know, like the laws have been around for years and years. And even the Supreme Court said, yes, it's the same laws, nothing changes. So it's how you spin it. But like I said, we're going to see more and more of this. And, and, and I, like I said, um, it's very important for that data element because the, um, 
it's just so easy for companies like Uber to just tweak this system or program it in a certain way to get away from that liability. So it's still, we still need that transparency. We still need to be able to, you know, access our data and we need to know, um, you know, we need to know if, if basically really like my point from day one always been about the law being on force. I'm not saying we need new laws. We have existing laws, but the problem we have is someone somewhere is failing to enforce their laws. And it means companies like Uber could come in and not obey the law because they could afford not to. You know, so average, like a normal small company or cab office would never be able to um, fight it all the way to the Supreme Court. So, um, yeah. I'm, so, I'm seeing Willie nodding a lot at what you're saying. So I can't wait to hear what he has to say about it. Well, um, that's yes, what I was going to say was like, can we just bring Willie in before we, we let Yassine go? <laughs> I, but I do want to say, Yassine, you've stayed up super late. I think it's midnight there to be with us. So um, if you need to go, we understand. And thank you very much for, for being part of our show tonight. I mean, I mean, I'm happy to stay a little bit longer. It'd be good to hear, uh, uh, really, because I haven't, um, and it's, it's nice to meet you guys today. So um, I'm late anyway. So. <laughs> okay, welcome. Let's get into it then. Yeah, Willie, let's let's bring you in here because we saw you nodding and I know a lot of uh, the things that Yassine was talking about resonate with you and your own story. So I guess just by way of introducing you to our viewers, uh, if you guys don't know who Willie Solis is, you should. He's amazing. Uh, Willie <clears throat> is a shipped shopper from Dallas, Texas. Um, and shipped, as, as you all know, is the delivery service for Target, the, uh, the mega store chain Target, which relies on gig workers like Willie. Uh, Willie has a background in construction and has years of experience running his own business. And Willie began working for Shipt in 2019 and has been deeply involved in gig worker organizing over the last two years. And he's actually the lead organizer for Shipt Shoppers with the Gig Workers Collective. Shout out to the Gig Workers Collective and Vanessa Bain and everyone there. All right, Willie, let's get you in here. What are your thoughts on, on what you were hearing from Yassim? Wow. You know, that's the first reaction is, is everything that he is saying is resonating completely with me. Um, your story is seeing is, is, is exactly our story. And, 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 and it's just, it just translates so well to the, the fight that we have here in the United States as well. Um, much of the things that you were talking about in regards to the levels of control, exercise of that control, um, the spin that is being given and the, uh, uh, the way that these gig companies are, are portraying the message overall um, it, it's just it's just astounding how um, they think that that on on its face they can get away with such um, such lies you know at the end of the day um, shipped operates in much the same way that uber does i've actually worked for uber eats um, and various other gig apps and i can tell you that um, the way that they operate is very very similar and to hear your story from across the pond it's 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 it resonates completely and it gives hope for us um, on this side of things to to uh, to advance the conversation here well, you know what, um, what really struck me, Willie, um, not to put words in your mouth, but I remember you and I, you and I kind of had a recent uh, discussion, which I guess I can't talk too much about because it's supposed to be an interview for a book. <laughs> so I got to, I got to want, I got to encourage people to buy the book, but uh, I did a great interview with Willie. Um, but one thing that also struck me was when Yassim was talking about how before he started working for Uber, right, he had you have a taxi dispatch, you have a human being on the other side of the phone, right? And I remember uh, you when you were talking about 
what kind of prompted you to eventually get into organizing because you kept running into the same problems. One of those problems had to do with like how hard it was to get a hold of someone at shipped when like your card wasn't working at a grocery store. Could you, could you talk a little bit about that, that kind of the struggle of, of finding someone who could help you at shipped and how that actually hurts you as a worker? Yeah, absolutely. So as Justine was, was, was saying, you know, everything is great and everything belongs to Uber. Everything belongs to ship as everything is, you know, working the way it's supposed to, but the moment something happens that is out of line or does just doesn't fit what you're supposed to be doing when it's supposed to happen, or if it's a tragedy, an accident or whatever, um, you're on your own. And they absolutely 100% just leave you out there hanging. Um, and, and they reprimand you for it when you get into, when, into situations. I was actually deactivated back in 2019 um, temporarily because I was running late. And that running late was because I was actually trying to get orders processed. Um, instead of trying to cancel the order or not fulfilling the order for whatever reason, I was trying to do everything that I could. So if you can imagine having a grocery cart full of groceries, trying to go through the line and your card is not working. And if you can imagine that on, on, a, on a personal basis, imagine trying to call ship where you're having to wait two, you know, two hours or, or longer um, to get a hold of somebody during, during a, uh, uh, like a holiday season. Um, and that's when I was deactivated was during Thanksgiving uh, season. Um, and it, it, it's a problem. It's a problem overall. And they put it on our shoulders. They put it on our backs and they say, it's your fault. Um, your uh, Uber's rating of 4.4 is actually very generous. I was actually jealous hear, hearing that. Ours is at uh, 4.7. So if, if you don't meet 4.7, guess what? You're going to lose your job. Um, and a lot of that times, that's very, very unfair because a lot of these situations have nothing to do with what your level of, of service is. It has everything to do with the things that are stacked up against you um, on a daily basis, whether it be in the store, uh, processing issue, uh, a number of things that are outside of your control. But guess what? It's your fault and you need to pay for it. So I guess uh, we're going to take a break in a second and then we'll, we'll let Yassine go to sleep. But Yassine, I was curious, did you did you have any kind of uh, questions for Willie or Willie vice versa? Um, to be honest, I don't really... Um... I fully understand what he says without him even saying anything because I heard it so many times. Uh, and as ADCU, we also represent couriers, uh, fast food delivery like Deliveroo, Uber Eat. And it's the same problem everywhere. And on top, I'm also on the steering committee on the International Alliance. So I talk to drivers around the world. And it's the same problem. It's nothing unique. But the question is, how do we globally deal with this? And that's what we're trying to do as an International Alliance. But one thing I want to add before I go is, we talked about the B worker status, the middle status that we have in the UK. But this was something that we filed back in 2015. But looking at Uber's model today, I think our drivers or drivers working on Uber at the moment in the UK are better off being an employee because it gives them more protection like pension, sick pay, uh, when they get dismissed from the platform unfairly, you know, so they have a right to challenge that. So we don't get all that as a B worker. So it's so easy. And I see this in um, the AB5 and all this stuff, the Prop 22, where Uber's trying to spin a middle category. But the point is, it's either we're independent contractors or we're an employee where we should have all these rights because it's technically a full-time job. No, that's it for me. Hell yeah. Well, you've seen again, like, like Bama said, we cannot thank you enough for, for staying up late and joining us seeing, seeing you and Willie on the same uh, stream has really made my days. And yeah, congrats again to you and everyone across the pond on this huge victory. 
Thank you. All right. So I think uh, we're going to come back to our boy Willie Solis in just a minute. But right now, Evan's got a little uh, musical interlude to, to give us a little chance to stand up and stretch our legs. Back. We, back we are back live <laughs> all right uh thanks for that, that interlude uh evan that was a great song so i'll, I'll pick this up uh to to kind of continue our um chat with uh gig worker and organizer willie solis uh then i'll toss things over to my uh great co-host bama uh to welcome our final and and really exciting guest maria figueroa um so willie while we have a couple more minutes with you you know 
there's so many things I want to ask connecting what you've seen said to what I know uh, you're deeply invested in, but I wanted to make sure that we had at least a couple minutes to talk about where Prop 22 and uh, fits into all of this, right? Because Yassine was talking about how, you know, from their side in the UK, a big part of the problem, in fact, the biggest part of the problem is not that the laws are bad, but that they're not being enforced or that companies like Uber and Lyft are being allowed to, you know, worm their way around them in order to exploit workers for profit. Prop 22 is a little different though. Prop 22 is these companies really trying to change the law itself. So I guess for viewers who are unfamiliar, could you talk a bit about, um, you know, not to put you on the spot, but what's your kind of like elevator description of what Prop 22 uh, is uh, and how it fits into this discussion? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about 22. It's a, a very important topic. Um, the basic basic function of 22 is that it's an exemption to law, um, AB5. AB5 was passed because of court cases, the Dynamex case in particular. Um, it was codifying the Dynamex ruling into law where it, AB5 actually says um, that gig workers should be classified as employees and not independent contractors. Um, so for a whole year um, between January 1st of uh, 2020 um, to the time that it actually got passed in November, um, gig workers were actually employees. Um, and as Yassine was saying, it, the regulators were not moving fast enough um, to, to basically enforce that. And in the meantime, gig companies operated in the same, same style, same fashion that they had been operating for, for, for years. Um, exploiting workers using algorithmic despotism, despotism to uh, to basically um, gain control over workers in a way that we couldn't fight back. Um, in August, uh, the one interesting thing is that in August of 20, uh, 2020, Uber CEO actually said that he was uh, considering uh, or that they were looking at the option of licensing um, instead of converting gig workers into employees, obviously because the cost of doing so is pretty high. Um, where we as gig workers are bearing a lot of that weight. Um, so when they started losing their cases um, in August and in September, um, they really went full force. They opened up the coffers to a war chest of over $200 million um, to push forth Prop 22 in the general election. Um, and where we were the weakest, they were the strongest. Um, and specifically in San Francisco, where our messaging was really strong, where gig worker messaging was really strong, all the orgs that came together um, to push there, they uh, actually, we were actually able to win over 50% of the vote um, in, in favor of gig workers or no on Prop, 20, uh, Prop 22. Um, the unfortunate part is in the rest of the state because we don't have those coffers. They were able to pass all this misinformation and disinformation campaigns and confuse the voting public that Prop 22 was actually good for workers. Um, and it wasn't, um, and it clearly wasn't. Yeah, I can't cannot emphasize enough for anyone who's just now hearing about prop 22 uh, or who only heard about it in passing i cannot stress enough how much money companies like uber lyft doordash postmates dumped into this misinformation campaign to lie to the voting california public about what prop 22 was and to basically dupe people into thinking that they were on the side of workers when really that was very much the opposite so willie you know, I, I know that when you and I have talked about this, uh, you know, off the live stream, you know, I'm very pessimistic about what Prop 22 means for the future of work in general and, and for, you know, quote unquote, gig workers right now. 
you actually kind of uh, gave me a nice dose of cold water that I think kind of, um, again, links back to what Yassine was saying, right? Where, you know, Uber kept appealing, <clears throat> excuse me, Uber kept appealing these decisions in the UK and it kept losing until finally the Supreme Court said, okay, enough of this, Uber's wrong. And you talked about how, you know, in the wake of 22, it seems like, you know, these gig companies may face a similar challenge. And in fact, that's why they went the route that they went in the first place, right? Instead of going the legislative route, they went through the 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 prop route. Could you, I guess, could you talk a little bit about what that, the route that they took, what that says to you and what it means uh, for you about like how we can fight this? Yeah, absolutely. Um... And just like in, in the UK, they were on the wrong side of the law, plain and simple, and they weren't able to win in the courts. So what they ended up doing was spent this 200 and something million dollars um, over the course of several months, a couple of months to get um, Prop 22 really going. And once they got it going, um, they, they were able to uh, basically lie to not only workers, but also the, the voting public. In doing so, um, it gave a lot of people in the gig economy and gig organizing like um, a case of, wow, we just lost, right? They handed us a huge loss. Um, but the reality is that they have, are giving us the tools that we need uh, moving forward to basically address what it is that they actually did or are doing under Prop 22. Um, they're writing our campaigns for us. Um, people, I, I talk to workers every single day, every single day. And, and in doing so, I'm hearing conversations with workers like, hey, I'm not getting the 30 cents per mile. Well, let's dive into that. Why are you not getting it? Um, and I mean, it's, it's, it's issue after issue, them controlling the boundaries of where you can go. Um, the level of control has exacerbated. Uh, we recognize and realize at this point that they could actually even force us to wear uniforms if they wanted to. Um, and, and the reality is that they could, and no, there's no way, no, no way for a gig worker to stop them um, or to say, hey, I'm supposed to be independent. Um, so again, it, it gives me great hope to know the fact that they're actually so quickly jumping on this because it, it spells out how bad Prop 22 was uh, or is, and it basically gives us a, the, the tools that we need to be able to show this is their third way of classifying workers. This is what they say is good for workers. How is this any different than being an employee? Um, they're treating us like employees without any of the, of, of the uh, social safety nets, without any of the proper pay, without any of the proper protections. They're taking all of this away from us, right? And at the end of the day, what they're doing is taking all that extra profit that they're gaining and putting it in their pockets. Um, just the other day, there was a, 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 an Uber driver that was actually assaulted while, while he was um, in a vehicle. Um, and, and Uber's response was, Hey, we're going to give you like 20 bucks or we're going to give you 40 bucks. But once it's hit, hit the news, guess what? They offered him a hundred, hundred and something bucks, right? How is that going to compensate him for not only the time loss, right? But the dangers that he put himself into the liabilities that are involved and just, just in general, um, all the, all the uh, precarious nature of our work. It's not. Um, and the only reason he got any compensation was because the media picked it up. Had the media not picked it up, nobody would have heard his story. Um, so at the end of the day, it, it's putting us in a position where we need um, to be able to show, right, the media that, hey, Prop 22 was not only bad. I mean, if you Google Prop 22 right now, you're going to find nothing but negative articles. The one, of the, one, of the, one of the most amazing ones for me is Instacart um, is, is lied to you for you to, to pay the cost of 22. Um, and it's very, very much true. Um, you know, cost for the consumers going up. They promised the consumers that their costs would not go up and they're going up. On our side of things, our, our pay is actually going down. 
Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, these Prop 22 passing gives us the ability and the tools that we need on a national level to carry the conversation forward. So I have, uh, I have like um, kind of thoughts on, on how this could connect to kind of larger legal and legislative challenges, perhaps the PRO Act and, and its uh, provisions for misclassification. But by way of transitioning, Bam, I wanted to see if, if, if you wanted to take this up, maybe kind of bridge uh, Willie and, and our next guest and our yeah. asking a question. I, you know, I do, and Willie, that is so many more questions for you as well. Um, I do want to properly introduce our next guest, Maria Figueroa, and I'll, I'll explain a little bit about who she is, but, but I do want to come back to this, you know, I think, um, uh, Max, you just put, you know, out there the question that's on my mind too, which is about, it's not just about the PRO Act, right, and it's not just about legislation, but it's about like building the power we need to get that passed. Um, but Maria, we're going to bring you into this as well, because you've been looking at these issues nationally and internationally. Uh, Maria is with the Cornell uh, Industrial and Labor Relations Schools Worker Institute, and she is also on the board of the Worker Justice Center in New York and um, is working very closely with gig workers who are organizing, delivery workers in particular, who are organizing in New York City. So she's gonna have a lot to say on multiple levels. I mean, but but Willie, I mean, let's go back to, you know, uh, let me kind of mix my question with, with Max's last question. I mean, you know, PRO Act, you know, got a lot of support, got a great statement from President Biden. None of that would have happened, but for the fact that over the course of this past year, we've seen actually so much new worker organizing. So can you talk a little bit about what the past year has looked like for organizing? Oh, wow, it's been amazing. Um, you know, we, my organization, Gig Workers Collective, is as, grassroots, as grassroots as it gets. Um, we don't have the right to organize and actually form a collective bargaining um, agreement with, with these gig companies or force them into even considering one. But what we can do is we can definitely bring to light all these issues as, as best as we can. That's why the PRO Act is really, really important um, because we do need that right to organize and we do need to be properly classified. And with it having um, the, 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 the positive steps forward, that's exactly what we need in this country. Um, I'm really hopeful that the Biden administration and Congress can really push this thing through um, and move forward and, and actually get results for working people. And um, at the end of the day, that's that's who needs to the, the relief and we not the gig companies. We need the relief. So organizing in general is has been very, very impressive. I've never done organizing myself in my life, um, so I'm completely new to it. But I can tell you in, in the circles that that I've that I've been in and that I've met people. Um, it's, it's, it's a collective agreement or collective together of, of empowerment that's happening. And I mean, everybody's coming together to, to uplift each other for sure. Great. Okay. Thanks. So we'll bring Maria in a, uh, just a bit and connect this back to the international, but Willie, if you can stay with us, I think it'd be great to get some, some back and forth as well. And Maria, one of the reasons why we were excited to have you join us tonight is that you are really taking this from local to global. And you know we've been in touch, and I know you pulled together a virtual event with um, gig worker organizations from around the world just a couple months ago. And so as we kind of think about you know these fights, like the fight that Willie has just described here, can you just start by telling us about some of the groups that you've been in touch with in other countries that we might not have heard about? We have Yasmin on, and we've been talking a bit about the UK, but but where else are we seeing gig worker organizations coming up and fighting these fights? 
-hmm. Well, uh, yeah, first of all, thank you for having me. This is, uh, you know, such an honor to be here in this program. And, you know, I want to commend you for, for this work. Um, and well, in regards to the question of uh, what other groups uh, across the world are doing similar work, um, the first one that comes to mind is, um, because we're talking about delivery workers uh, too, uh, is the Fudora experience in Canada with the Postal Workers Unions, uh, you know, which also included elements of like, new legal strategies, right? A, a third way category for workers, right? The dependent contractor. And despite all those uh, mechanisms, sort of innovative, um, you know, legal mechanisms, um, the company just decided to leave, right? So, um, you know, um, it's, it's really, it just shows you how difficult, you know, this fight is, but the real, um, you know, uh, the, 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 the best source of optimism for me and for everyone who is involved in organizing uh, is, is um, the ability of workers to just self-organize, right? Is is and, and you know that surge in in organizing uh, and activism that we've been seeing uh, all over the world, I would say, right? Because uh, we also um, hosted uh, um, workers from Australia, from Africa, and you know Uber drivers from Africa, and they all you know engaged in the fight and um, decided to continue this fight, right? And so I think it's, it's, you know, we all realize it's hard, right? And it's, it looks like a long winding road, right? Uh, you know, that's what we saw with, with AB5 and Proposition 22. Um, but it's, it's just a matter of keeping up the, uh, the fight, right? And, and, and come up with, um, responses, innovative responses to, to all the challenges that, you know, these platform companies are able to bring in front of us because they have so many resources, right? That, you know, uh, financial resources that we don't necessarily have, right, as workers. And so, but, but I think we have a lot in our favor in terms of, uh, the search in activism, the search in self-organizing, and also the history, you know, um, uh, the experience of unions, right? Like uh, RWDSU and others who are, you know, coming up and, 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 and supporting the workers in, in their uh, self-organizing efforts. Yeah, so, so you know, I wanna uh, ask you to tell us a little more about what happened when you actually got people from different countries into the same virtual space. Now, you know, I know you had groups from Mexico, groups from Argentina. You, you have to tell us some of the other countries. I think Netherlands. I can't remember where else. What yeah. happened when you actually had them in the same room? What they talk about? Yeah, they <clears throat> immediately saw the connections and immediately they had the desire to share, right? Share knowledge, uh, strategies, how did you do it, right? Like for instance, we have uh, food delivery workers from Norway, right? Um, and food delivery workers from Argentina and Mexico and New York, right? And of course, you know, right there, like they were like, how did you do it? 
uh, and we want to continue connecting with you, right? We want to learn more about your experience. And of course, what came up is like the question about, okay, what is your legal framework, right? What, what are, how are the laws in your country? <clears throat> because that's the other issue. We all start from different starting points, right? Because that depends on the legal framework, right? Of the country in which we live. So it was very interesting. And, you know, in Norway, for instance, and most of Europe, um, the food delivery workers are uh, classified as employees. So it's like they don't have to wage that fight, right? It's a different starting point. They, uh, of course, you know, the companies um, have other type of strategies, anti-union strategies, right? <laughs> and so it's like a different type of fight. But what is common, completely like common, you know, is the ability of workers to come together, right? And, and, and you know, <clears throat> and, 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 and do the fight. So like in the case of the food delivery workers, there are some elements that are common to all of them, right? Like the physical proximity, right? They all have to hang up, hang out in a place, in a public um, park or, you know, um, a corner, a city corner, they all in front of a, of a food chain restaurant, right? <clears throat> and they are all there talking union, right? So um, it's very interesting that that is common to all the countries, right? Uh, but unfortunately, you know, we don't start from the same legal, you know, uh, framework. Yeah, although the other thing that we have in common is <clears throat> all transnational companies at the end of the day, right? And, and you know, whether they're taking advantage of workers in Norway or Mexico, uh, it's coming back to the same capital holders. That is true. Well, you know, and, and Maria, like, first of all, it's so great to have you here. I'm super mm -hmm. excited uh, that you're joining us. And, you know, I wanted to ask, like, because it, it's so inspiring to hear any story of workers, you know, sharing resources, showing solidarity, sharing strategies internationally, like, that's the shit that gets me up in the morning, right? I mean, I think that's why we all do what we do, right? Mm -hmm. And I guess I wanted to ask, like, beyond uh, workers in different countries kind of communicating and sharing, have there been discussions about how we can act internationally in concert? Because I think the thing that comes to mind, it was what, spring of 2019, where there was the global uh, Uber-like boycott? My dad told me that I think that my dad um, at that time, that was his first like strike that he had ever participated in. And it was really, he called me and he said, hey, I might head down to LAX. I hear a bunch of the drivers are down there, which was really cool because I was, I was sending him links. I was like, look, drivers in India are doing this too. Drivers in Latin America are doing this too. Mm -hmm. So I guess I just wanted to kind of ask about that. Like, you know, even if we're playing on idiot, nationally idiosyncratic terrain, what possibilities might there be for us coordinating internationally? 
Oh, yeah. I think there are plenty of possibilities and opportunities. And, and I think um, Bama can also speak to that uh, very well because uh, she actually was instrumental in bringing together uh, the, the uh, uh, writer workers, right? In, in the, the very first few uh, international meetings, right? Of that, of that industry, um, of workers in that industry. So I think the same uh, can happen with food delivery workers and also even with domestic workers. And there are initiatives. There are, you know, uh, incipient, you know, uh, activities, right? Uh, initial organizing, at least bringing people together because uh, these platforms are going everywhere, right? In every sector of the economy. And so I know of domestic workers uh, in Europe connecting with uh, South Asian uh, domestic worker groups, right? And also in uh, Latin America. And so, you know, it all starts sometimes with the conference, right? An international conference and, and people get together or, you know, uh, the Solidarity Center of the AFL, you know, uh, uh, running some kind of program, international program, and they all come together and there is a, there is a lot of hunger for that. So, I, I see a lot of opportunities. And actually that is why also we try to invite more groups in food delivery and domestic work in the conference that we held in November, um, because we know that Bama already did this big conference, you know, for Russian workers. And so, um, you know, I, I think, you know, every time, every time uh, they get together, um, there is really like a spark, you know, for continuing the collaboration and, and the sharing, right? And the coordination, hopefully, at one point, right? And, and we've seen it, we've seen it in, in, in right share. Uh, I'm sure we will see it in, in other sectors as well. Oh, know? yeah. And mm -hmm. just, um, Willie, we'll have to talk about this after the live stream ends in, in two minutes. But uh, Maria, what you were just saying reminded me of Willie's story, because Willie will tell you he didn't set out to be an organizer, uh, but he made one phone call uh, to another gig worker um, that really kind of started the process that turned him into an organizer. And how many phone calls did you end up making in one month, Willie? Over 650 in, in two weeks. And, and we all connected and resonated with each other based on the same commonality and same story. These companies try to keep us apart, but our stories are too common and, and it brings us together for sure. Yeah. Hell yeah. Really, I'm just curious, have you compared your story with stories from any, uh, you know, d delivery workers in other countries? Yeah, I, I listen and, and I'm paying attention to all that. And I've heard things in, in Mexico, uh, Africa, and everything seems to be identical to each other. And it's, it's a bunch of shaking their heads. Yes, all the time when we're having those conversations. Let's keep those conversations going. And speaking of which, uh, if you're watching right now, tune in every week for new uh, Labor Radio Podcast Network live streams. Um, we got to wrap up, but this has been so great. Uh, Bama, it's been an honor to co-host this with you. Um, and, and please, everyone, go check out the Gig Podcast, check out Working People, and check out the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Thank you to Willie. Thank you to Maria. Thank you to Yasin. Thank you to Evan and Chris and everyone for putting this together. We'll see you guys uh, next week.
I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1925. That was the day the first civil lawsuit for damages was filed on behalf of the Radium Girls. During the 1910s and 20s, radium was all the rage. It was considered a medical cure-all for everything from blindness to asthma. The U.S. Radium Corporation employed hundreds of young women in New Jersey and Illinois to paint radium onto watch dials and military instruments. Women workers were instructed to shape the paintbrushes to a fine point with their lips in order to paint the numbers onto the watch faces. They soon fell ill. Many complained of losing scores of teeth and shattered and rotting jaws. The death toll began to rise. U.S. Radium and other related companies initially tried to smear the women as suffering from syphilis. Catherine Wiley of the New Jersey Consumers League began investigating the use of radium by dial painters. She was also concerned about how emissions affected the community surrounding the plant. Wiley enlisted the help of Alice Hamilton, mother of industrial medicine and occupational toxicology. The chief medical examiner of Essex County determined the women suffered from radium exposure. They were exhaling radon gas. The findings were earth-shattering for the industry. Case proceedings were highly publicized in the press. Extremely frail and sick young women appeared in court, barely able to walk or testify. The company agreed to settle the case. $10,000 for each woman, a $400 a year pension, and medical care. Women at the Ottawa plant suffered for years before finally learning the truth about their job-related illnesses. The case impacted fields related to occupational safety and health. It also fundamentally broadened scientific understanding of radioactive elements. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. my brother cause if you do you can hear there are voices still calling from across the years and they're crying across the ocean they're crying across the land and they will until we all come to understand none of us are free none of us are free 